Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Do I seem farther back than usual, or is it just... Okay. Edit this part out of the video. I'm just kidding. (laughs) All right, now I feel like I'm talking to you guys. Sweet. Um, Yeah, so this morning, just a quick heads up. I've been up since about 3 in the morning with a migraine. Um, So um, I just take another dose of medicine. I'm probably reaching that limit of, of medicine in one day, even though it's only... 9.30, Um, but that to say, um, yeah, if you see me struggling to see, that's kind of, you know, don't, don't worry about me. I'm just, I'm just working through that and I'm, I'm not worried about it. So you don't be either, but if I'm squinting, eh, that's okay. That's okay. So, um, part of that is I'm getting old. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Uh, A lot of white gray hairs in my beard, which once upon a time I thought was really cool. Now it just starting to look like Santa Claus. I'm not happy about that. Um, But it kind of ties into the fact that uh, I am part of Generation X. I am part of Generation X. And I say that proudly. I say that proudly because I know there is a lot of baggage with that uh, and some negative stereotypes, including the fact that we are known as the latchkey generation. Now, the latchkey generation, what that means is we didn't have supervision. Like, we, after school, we got home and we were by ourselves until somebody came, you know, when our parents came home from work. And if we had a day off from school, we were just home all day. They locked the door behind us, they left, and we, and we just stayed home. And that's okay. It was a different generation. And at least back, back then, we had a lot of joy. We had a lot of joy because, I don't think this is a dispute or argument, but we had the best toys, we had the best music, movies, yeah, already you're getting angry, um, and, and, and cartoons. And we had the best cartoons. Even, even the bad ones were still pretty good. Not only were they good cartoons, they had great toys, but they actually taught us lessons. I know that sounds weird, but you, you kind of had to be there, but... For instance, after every episode of uh, G.I. Joe, if you saw the G.I. Joe cartoon, there was a public service announcement. And so one of the G.I. Joes would would get a group of children and explain something very practical to the fact that they were home alone, which is very interesting that the writers knew that these kids are home alone because one of them is actually really, really important information And it was, if your house is on fire, children, if your house is on fire, do not call the fire department. Get out of the house, right? And so I know with cell phones, it kind of doesn't make sense. Well, back then, like, phones were tied in the house, and so don't call the fire department. Get out of the house. Very practical knowledge. Or there's one that I remember, and I actually went back and researched this to make sure I'm not lying. This actually happened. One of them... It said, if somebody passes out, if somebody passes out, don't lift their head. Don't move their body. 
And of course, you're not supposed to do that. But I, I didn't know why, but I know I spent all of middle school and high school waiting for somebody to pass out, ready to not lift their head. <laughs> and so, very, like they taught us these lessons. And so at the end of the episode, these kids who had been taught these lessons would say, well, now we know. And to which the G.I. Joe, the hero, would say, and knowing is half the battle. Knowing is half the battle. Now, one battle that every generation has, every generation is the battle for joy, especially when that magic of youth wears off. In fact, we so desperately want that joy. One of the most lucrative markets out there, especially in the United States, in the West, is based on nostalgia. Right? You ever look at the price of comic books and sports cards? Like, I watch a lot of videos on YouTube about those things, and it's like hundreds, if not millions of dollars. Why for this stuff? Because of joy, because it takes someone back to that moment of joy. So we collect stuff. And, and me, I'm not saying you guys, me. You've been to my house. I have a bunch of wacky stuff everywhere. This is me as well. And we go to conventions, watch our old movies, make our kids listen to the, the cool music, the better music. And we see this, you know, in, in you know, shows like Stranger Things and a lot of shows that are built around nostalgia now, even movies that are built, like part of the setting and story is nostalgia. Kate Bush and Metallica are at the top of the charts, like it's 1986. So we know Generation X, we're controlling some stuff right now, right? We know who, who's in control. But I think part of this, genuinely, is that people don't have joy. And so we want to go back, right? We want to go back to those moments that we knew brought us joy. And so this morning, with that in mind, we're going to look at how to have joy. Even in a world like ours today, where it's just, oh, what is happening in the world? This is so frustrating and upsetting. And the key to this, as we learned last week, is the pneuma, right? The spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to help us here. The Holy Spirit is going to give us this information and this knowledge. And this morning, we will discover not only is knowing half the battle, but knowing is actually the entire battle. Our text today is going to be John 16, 12 through 33. We'll finish John 16 this morning. And our sermon is called uh, Knowing Pneumatology, Part 2, Suffering Plus Knowledge Equals Joy. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are awesome. Um, I know everybody believes their generation was the best and they grew up in the best time, but thank you for the context that I grew up in. Thank you for me and everyone here for allowing us to be who we are, to exist in the time and place that we do. May we make the most of that and reach this generation, Lord, whether it's a millennial, X, Z, whatever it might be, Lord. May their identity not be in their generation, but in you, Lord. May all generations sing your praises, know your glory, know your sweet salvation, call upon your name, and know your joy even in the midst of suffering. Please open our hearts and minds to your word this morning, Lord. And may you be honored by our love and worship of you, as always, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start this morning by looking at the reality and context of this passage, which is suffering. 
Now, this conversation, which has probably taken us months now, but I assure you, this was only a very small conversation that we are dissecting. This whole conversation is based around suffering, right? Everything is based on Jesus telling his disciples who he is leaving, you are going to suffer. He's going to be arrested and murdered. And yet Jesus repeatedly has said, take heart. Take heart, guys. Like, this is going to happen, but take heart. Even at the end of this chapter, in verse 33, uh, Jesus says again, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. There it is again. Tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And so this conversation is not how to have a good day. Right? It's not how to have a good day. It's tribulation. It's suffering. It's the world hates you. Hey, but you're going to be all right. You're going to be all right. Take heart. Have peace. Now, to make matters worse about this situation, as he's talking about uh, tribulation, about the fact that, that he's going to leave them, and they're going to be really depressed. Here, here's the, the rub in the salt in the wound is he says that the world is going to celebrate. The only thing I can kind of think of that, that, that would, you know, I guess in a shallower way, like point to this is being at a sporting event where one team loses and one team wins and you have fans who are crying and fans who are celebrating. And Jesus is saying, that's what's going to happen. You guys are going to be completely bummed out. Not only that, you're not even going to hear yourselves crying because everybody else is going to be cheering. And we find this in verses 21 and 22, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so twice here, Jesus mentions the fact that, yes, there's going to be suffering taking place, but that it's not permanent, that it is going to be transformed into joy. And we'll look at in a few minutes, but quite frankly, sometimes the door to joy is a very painful, uncomfortable door that we have to go through to get to that joy. Hence this picture of a woman giving birth, lots of pain. Guys, we just have to trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about and the women know what they're talking about when they tell us this. But nobody, the women don't talk about that when the baby's born, right? It's like, oh, like it's a baby. This is amazing. This is amazing. What an amazing gift. And they forget that whole experience. And I do believe the disciples don't quite understand this. Because in the middle of this conversation, Jesus actually, it says Jesus is actually looking at them and thinking, they don't get this. Right? And they're guys. They, they, they shouldn't fully get it. But the principle is one they will get an experience over the next four days, suffering that culminates in joy. Now, I think the problem that we face, though, is that this is almost exclusively intellectual for us, this concept of suffering. We just have to name it. 
we don't understand. Right? We just don't, in our context, understand this level of suffering. But as we've talked about before, like we can see it. We can see it happening. It's no longer when I was younger. It's like, no way I'm ever going to experience this stuff. And yet here we are, little by little, we're starting to experience at least a little bit of suffering. Now, the reason I mention this, even though I know we've talked about this, is from listening to, to our kids talk. Our young adults, our young ones, our teens, listen to them talk. We need to be aware of, even though we think our generation is better, maybe we have a great argument for it, their generation, for, for all that we would make fun of it for, Maybe that's just me who likes doing that. Um, they are living in a different generation than us. Our children are experiencing suffering that we never experienced at that age. Well, I was watching cartoons. I didn't experience suffering. We're going, our kids are going to school and even to college, community college and college, and they're experiencing suffering for their faith. And it's not, they're not being murdered. I mean, they're not being physically hurt. But they are not in a healthy situation, in a whole system that is against them, even, even if they're not saying, like, exclusively, specifically, everything they're teaching is anti-Christian. Anti-Christian. And so we just, I'm just saying be aware of that when we interact with our kids. Be more sympathetic. And I know, I know for me, it's rub, your, rub some dirt in it generation. Yes. Rub, tell them, rub some dirt in it. But also, be more loving. Be more willing to listen to them. This is something I've been convicted of, even giving more hugs than normal. Our kids are going through something that we didn't. Now, I hope this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, lest we get the wrong message here. Most of the things that, that, that we're going to talk about, most of them that can bring you joy in suffering you don't need to suffer in order to get to that joy. Now, some of them you do. We'll talk about that. And so when you're searching for joy, the point of this isn't to search out suffering to get joy. No, you don't. that's not the point of this. You can have joy. You can create joy without suffering. So I just wanted you to know that. If you're, if you're in a season of your life where you're not suffering, Ecclesiastes 3, there's a season for everything. You're in an awesome season. Awesome. Be awesome. Be joyful. Be happy. But what a great season to then prepare for that upcoming season, right, of suffering, of sorrow, a season we prepare for with knowledge. So knowledge. <coughs> we talked about this last week, the advantage of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit is an advantage, and we talked about the advantage of of conviction and um, knowing who Jesus is, uh, is and righteousness and judgment. And what we find here as we continue to study the advantage of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit gives us knowledge, right? That's what this is all about. Like the Holy Spirit is giving us knowledge. Not only did we not have, we could never have, could never comprehend. We don't even know it was a category of knowledge until the Holy Spirit opened our minds to it. And so we see a glimpse of this in verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus can't squeeze every, all of theology into one 
conversation. But thankfully, they're going to have the advantage of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, right? Into knowledge of truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so the Holy Spirit is this guide to knowledge. The Holy Spirit's going to guide the disciples uh, to Jesus and, and to the glory of Jesus. And we need to be careful here, lest whenever we read Scripture, we always ask, what is it saying to me? Well, what, what is it saying first, right? And so the first thing we need to realize is the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the disciples is not the same relationship that we have. The first thing is, well, the disciples, they spoke to Jesus. They saw Jesus. They hung out with Jesus. Um, they're going to see him again in a couple of days after he dies, get some more lessons. And so the Holy Spirit is different with the disciples because he's not going to lead them to, to the Bible like us. He's going to remind them of everything that they learned with Jesus. That's why there's several texts after this that, that it's like the, the, the disciples themselves, even in the book of John, will remember. Oh, the Holy Spirit reminded me. Jesus said this thing. We thought he was crazy. We didn't know what he was talking about. Now it makes sense because the Spirit has come and guided them, put all the information together to give us the gospel. And that becomes our advantage as well. So even though we don't have that experience, it's still our advantage because the Holy Spirit, even as Paul mentions in 2 Timothy, you know, inspires the writing of Scripture. And so this experience the disciples had, the Holy Spirit guides them to thank God, praise God, write it all down, right? So these guys who got to hang out with Jesus, like in this gospel, I believe that John, whether it was John the disciple or John the 12 or John out of the 70, John was there. And so this is firsthand knowledge that the Holy Spirit is reminding him, this is everything that took place. And John, not only that, but the Spirit helps John write this in, in, as a sermon, taking all this knowledge, and John doesn't say, Jesus said this, Jesus said that. He frames it all. And I think we're going to end the series in, I don't know, a couple of weeks or months and, and go back one last sermon and look at the way it is lined up. The, it, it is absolutely beautiful. But that's the power of the Spirit, taking all that experience and information and organizing it like that. And that's an advantage to us. And because of that, because they wrote it down, we have what? A New Testament. Right? We have the New Testament. That means the Holy Spirit to us. Well, what does that look like? Well, if the Holy Spirit's not going to guide us to the, this, this life that we had with Jesus, we have something that's equally as good. All right, we have the inside information. The Holy Spirit is going to point us to Scripture. It's going to point us to Scripture. That is the job of the Holy Spirit, to give us that knowledge, that knowledge, that truth that glorifies Jesus is Scripture. The Spirit will guide us to the truth of the Bible. But here's the deal, though. Knowing is half the battle, right? We, we learn that. From cartoons, knowing is half the battle. But there's knowing, and then there's knowing, right? And there's a lot of people who know more than me. A lot of people who know more about the Bible than me, know more about the Bible than you, 
but they don't know the Bible. And so in one sense, they have the battle won. If the battle is just for information, we lose that battle. There's people with 10, 20 degrees that can memorize Scripture and make every argument for or against it. The advantage we have is the advantage of the Holy Spirit. And as we learned last week, that this advantage is our conviction. And the conviction that we need this morning that separates just that, that, that advantage we have of just information knowledge is that it then becomes belief. It's one thing to know what the Bible says, and it's another thing to know that it's true. And that is the advantage of the Holy Spirit. That's what the, the knowledge the Holy Spirit gives us. Anybody can go to Barnes & Noble and buy a Bible. But they don't know it. They don't experience it. You can't buy the knowledge that it is true. That is a gift, right? That is the gospel. That is a gift to us. And lives are transformed not by the knowledge of the Bible, but the belief that the Bible is true, right? Not as a historical document, not that the Jesus was a cool teacher, but knowing, like, Jesus is my Savior. He's alive. He's my friend. He's my king. That is true. That is true today. When it says that God ascended to the throne there is being able to say, oh yeah, there's this verse that said that the Son of Man rose on the clouds and, and he's ascended to the right hand of God. You could know that. But if you know that's true, that changes the way you live. Jesus is on the throne? Okay, that just changes the whole framework of the way I live my life. And you need that framework. You need to know what's true to then take your suffering to joy, right? You, you get that suffering that you're going through, like the disciples are going to go through. You add that knowledge that the Holy Spirit gives about Jesus, about Scripture. That's how you can have joy even in that situation. And so the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at six truths that transform suffering into joy that are in this text. Six truths that transform suffering to joy. First is the joy of seeing Jesus raised from the dead. Now, this was unique to the disciples. Again, when we read Scripture, this is the first point we have to take out of any of it is, what happened? Like, who, who's experiencing this? Who's this for? And so, the first way this is true is Jesus being raised from the dead and seeing that is the disciples' unique experience. Verse 19 doesn't apply to us. Or verse 22. In verse 19, Jesus says, you will see me no longer. Right? I'm out of here. You will see me no longer, guys. But then you're going to see me. In verse 22, you will have sorrow. You will now have sorrow when you see what's about to happen. but then you're going to rejoice. And this is very unique to the disciples. And, I, and you talk about the ultimate suffering to joy picture here that he's trying to paint for them. And if they don't get it, they're going to after they see Jesus being beaten and, and killed. For three days, they're going to experience joy like, I'm sorry, suffering, like nothing I've ever experienced 
I've never had to watch my God get killed in front of me and blasphemed and made fun of, betrayed by one of the ones in our group. I've never had to spend three days probably sleepless wondering, what am I going to do now? I had a great career. What am I going to do now? And then to go from there to, to seeing Jesus again, to seeing the Master again, how do you define that sort of joy? I don't even think we can. It's just this inexpressible joy that is born out of that suffering. You know, and, and I would say, as I'm going to argue, it's, I, I think it's even more joy because of the suffering. If Jesus had left for an hour, you know, he's, Jesus, Jesus left them before. Jesus left them to go to the well for a day, right, and they catch up later. And I don't think there was joy after that time being apart. But three days after he died, to seeing him again, that just creates, it magnifies, multiplies the joy that's involved. I believe it's that joy, as you know, most scholars would say, this joyful experience of seeing Jesus raised from the dead that is then going to carry them on into their ministry. And they're going to start writing all these things down. They're going to start just going and doing ministry, and their shadows are going to heal people, and they're going to teach, and they're going to get beaten. They're going to get killed, and they're going to leave all this great information, firsthand knowledge about that experience. But I believe that, that it is based on the fact that Jesus conquered death, that they saw it, that they experienced it. It wasn't just an intellectual knowledge, but a belief in what they saw. We won't have that experience, not like they did. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, because we will see the resurrected Jesus. We just won't see it like they saw it after those three days. But we can still share in the joy of death being conquered. The joy of death being conquered. And here's the deal. The, the, the reality of death being conquered is that it, it gives us freedom and it gives us joy from the most difficult questions in life, the most suffering questions that, that people have argued about, um, given up their lives over, for being honest. Right? That, that is... The fear of death itself, fear of the unknown, the search for meaning. In Christ's resurrection, we, we find all those things, freedom from the fear of death, right? Life has meaning, right? We now have a purpose. God loved us. Our life has the most infinite value that, that Jesus would give his precious blood for us. We now have our value. There might be some sense of unknowing still day to day, but we know how it ends, and it's good, right? And so, but it's that transcendent joy, knowing that we're going to see Jesus face to face, that then takes us out of the suffering of the moment that we're in. But you have to believe that's true. If you, don't, if you just believe that on one level, it's not going to take you out of your suffering, because then you're kind of hoping, I hope there's something better. That's not going to take you out of suffering, you know, because then you're just, you know, you know you're just trying to fool yourself. You're not even respecting your own self. But if you believe it's true, if you know it's true, then you can have joy even in suffering. Bless you. Sounds like there's a cold going around. Is that, somebody say allergies? Oh. So, 
this next point, I think, is, is one that's kind of difficult to understand, but one that we need to try to understand, and that's the joy as the outcome of suffering. Joy as the outcome of suffering. A joy that is made more joyous in suffering. You could even say a prerequisite of this joy is suffering. It's this sort of suffering. For me, the best way I can explain it is that you suffer so much, it just tears at you, right? It just it turns you inside out. It, it just completely eats at you, right? Hollows you out, this suffering. But it's because of that, because you now have that space that's been taken out of you, that that space can be filled up with joy. And I think that's a completely different experience. That suffering made more room for joy. Again, Jesus using the example of labor of the woman that the woman experiences limitless joy afterwards. Now, I think the mom would still be happy to see, even if it wasn't a long labor, but there's something about that, right? Just putting in so much labor into something. Now, uh, this wasn't a natural segue, but I used to work as a water delivery driver. Speaking of labor, <coughs> um, um, I used to deliver water. Um, I used to deliver to hospitals, I'd say two, three times a week, deliver to hospitals, multiple floors, 20, 40 rooms. Um, every one of them had a cancer uh, ward section. Um, in Pueblo, Colorado, there was this one area, I forget what it was called, um, but it had a bell. It had this big, big bell inside of it. And the bell was only rung for two reasons. One, you finished chemo treatment. Like you had gone through the whole sequence of your chemo. Or two, you were cancer-free. Now, as you can imagine, ringing that bell, it meant two things. One, suffering. Right? Suffering through getting better from cancer or suffering, you know, a sequence, I don't know what it's called, the sequence of chemo treatment. And so a lot of suffering, yet ringing that bell is... Hearing that bell was always one of the most joyous occasions for me. Whenever that bell was rung, there was joy. Like, unbelievable. It's hard to describe. All the nurses would gather around the bell. All the nurses would gather around. Everybody in the front office would come back. All the doctors in their offices, it, it kind of went three directions, and the bell was in the middle. The doctors in their examination rooms, everybody would come out. Even like the unusually cool water delivery guy, he would stop. And we would all, we would all start clapping, right? They'd ring that bell. We'd start clapping and cheering. People are crying and it's filled, filled with joy. Now, ringing, hearing a bell ring any other place, eh, you know. Or, or maybe you're late, maybe it's a bad thing. But in that context, what makes the sound of that bell so joyous? It's the suffering. The reason we celebrate that sound, the joy of that sound is based on the suffering that took place to get to that sound. A joy that doesn't happen, that moment doesn't happen without being invested into that suffering. Now, the other side of that, though, which I've been through multiple times, is I've been in that part of the hospital, and they suffered, 
and they died, including my best friend. Well, where's the joy in that? Where's the joy in that? Well, if they were a believer, lots of joy. Lots of joy. Even in the midst of the tears, lots of joy. Because you know they have a joy that you can't even measure. Right? That's, that's the thing about being a Christian is, you know, you know, sometimes when people die, we'll say things like, oh, they're in a better place. They're playing in the great gig in the sky or baseball game in the sky or something. Nonsense, right? But Christians, when we say they're in a better place, if we know they're a believer, it's true. They're in a better place. They're in the greatest place, right? That they're with Jesus. They have a joy that we probably, I believe, can't even experience on earth. And so there's even joy in that suffering, even joy in our suffering as we cry. And it's perfectly fine to cry as a Christian. You can be sad and cry and also celebrate someone's life at the same time. Again, a unique benefit, right, advantage of the Holy Spirit. And knowing somebody who has experienced the grace of the Holy Spirit and and that conviction, we can suffer and have joy at the same time. You know, we need look no farther than the cross of Christ himself to believe this is true. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so, what is... It, what, what is um, whoever you think... I know we're having this... Me and Daniel having a discussion. I don't know who wrote Hebrews. That could be Paul. But what is he saying here? It's like, well, Jesus knew he had to suffer. Jesus could have, could have done anything, but he knew this process was a decision to suffer knowing that the end game was joy. And so th- this just shows that, that sometimes to have a certain joy, a great joy, you have to suffer. There's a kind of suffering, that requ- a joy that requires suffering And so, therefore, we should proceed always in the joy of Jesus, even when we're not suffering, in the joy of Jesus, but also knowing that whatever suffering we're going through, we are being perfected, and the end game is joy. We can have joy now and joy to come. And great news about that is it's a joy that can't be stolen. A joy that can't be stolen at the end of verse 22. It says, no one will take your joy from you. A joy born of suffering and sorrow is not like a catalytic converter. It, it, is, it, it can't be stolen. Now Alex, um, now, Alex had her joy of buying her first car working her butt off to buy her first car only to have her her catalytic converter stolen this week. So, a lot of suffering. Very heartbreaking. I'm not going to look at her now. Uh, (laughs) But it wasn't her fault. It wasn't her fault. They shouldn't have even stolen it. It wasn't even a good model to steal one of those off of, right? Whole other discussion. But it should help us to consider where we put our joy in. I don't think it's her fault, and I don't think this is what she was doing. But what are we putting our joy in? Where's the reliability of what we are putting our joy in? Where's the stability 
of our joy. The truth is sometimes, especially in difficult seasons of life, we start doing things to cope with suffering that aren't the best things to do, right? This, this is when we get into trouble. How do we cope with suffering? <clears throat> and so we will misplace our joy, the obvious being drugs and alcohol. You know, but even looking at this group, I, I don't see that, but sometimes we'll do things like we'll find it, that joy in our work, in events that are coming up. I'm guilty of that, concerts. I live my life according to the next concert coming up. Um, financial security, games, TikTok, health. How are you coping with the fact that, that life has suffering in it? If you do that, you have a joy that's at risk. And I'm not saying don't have hobbies. I believe good, healthy hobbies are a gift from the Lord. Get your rest, get your joy. But don't let that be the primary source of your joy because that's a joy that's misplaced. Now, the joy you have in Jesus, even in the midst of suffering, the world sees that, wants to take it away, and it can't. The world can't take it away. And I'm convinced one of the reasons the world hates us is that because we have joy. We live in a world where everybody's mad. It's like a right. It's an identity. What are you against? What are you mad at? That's how we find our friend groups. What do you hate? I hate that too. We should be friends. And so, so much hate. And yet the world sees us full of joy, and it's annoying. It's like, why aren't they suffering? Like, they're losing Sunday mornings. They can't watch football. They're giving their money you know, and so why, why are they happy? They're the ones who should not be happy. They're being, you know, I don't know why they're happy. And I believe that's, that's part of why it's part of this conversation. The joy annoys people who don't have that knowledge from the Holy Spirit. The other reason I believe that the world hates Christians has to do with joy, but it's because we have peace with the Father. At the end of the day, when you talk about hate and anger of the world, it is, it, is, it is based on sin. Now, they're not going to recognize that, but it's the same way where if somebody's being mean to you, it's usually not you. It was something happening somewhere else. Somebody else offended them. Something else went wrong. And I think for the unbeliever who hates the Christian, they can't process it, but that, that frustration on hate comes from the fact that they are disconnected from their creator. Now, we have the joy of the Father's peace and love. We have the joy of the Father's peace and love. And we read the words of Jesus in verses 25 through 28. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, which I think a lot of people think, for the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I have come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So all of a sudden, there's a, a really a big shift from Jesus talking, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, advantage of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, it's going to be just like having me here, but better. 
And now, six times in four verses, six times he talks about the Father, about the Father. Jesus doesn't want to forget, doesn't want us to forget, doesn't want the disciples to forget, and he's saying the Holy Spirit is not going to let, let us forget that we have peace and we have the love of God the Father. We've been reconciled to God the Father. Why mention this? Well, again, I think it all ties together that Jesus is highlighting the fact that the world is hostile because they are disconnected from the Father, something that should not be part of our suffering. We will suffer a whole lot of stuff, but that should not be part of our suffering, right? We don't have issues with our Father. I believe also what's happening here is that Jesus is explaining, you know, unhappiness and suffering is the result of sin. It is the result of sin. A lack of joy is a lack of peace with the Father. A lack of joy is lack of peace with the Father. So thankfully, in verse 27, talking to Christians, it says that the Father loves us. The Father loves us. That's great news. That's great news. If you're, I know some of you here, maybe you're like me at some point in your life, you'd question that, whether your Father loves you. You know, I don't know if anybody has issues with that, but a lot of people do. But that, that is not an issue for the Christian and our Father in heaven. God the Father chose us, right? We've seen this. I actually, I forgot to count. I think it's somewhere approaching about 30 references now, just in John, that, that, that it said God the Father gave us to Jesus, that, that we were chosen. So over and over, we're chosen. So God the Father has chosen to adopt us. Now, I don't know about you, just that fact alone, that, that takes me out of some suffering. Have you ever watched adoption videos of kids that have suffered through the foster system and finally get adopted? and they're crying like they just skinned their knee because they're so happy that they have a family. There's so much love and peace and everything. The only response is tearful joy. Again, we can go back and even point that to that suffering aspect, going through the foster system and then getting your family finally, and there's joy. Now, if you haven't seen these, you've probably seen the other adoption videos um, of animals. You ever seen adoption videos for, for animals that were in a shelter? Now, it's not as important, but, but it's still the same sentiment. And I, I, I'm a sucker for these videos where it's like, this dog hasn't moved in a year. He won't eat. He just sits there and cries. He's miserable. And even when they go and take him out, he's still miserable. He's moping. But there's this moment in the parking lot when they realize they've been adopted, and it's the best thing in the world to see they start like flipping over, right? Just doing somersaults, wagging their tail, barking, going insane because of that joy of being adopted when they thought they were goners, when they didn't think they were ever going to not stop suffering. And there we were, dead, sin sinful, hopeless, and our lives suffering and we were adopted, which means the person who hasn't been adopted by God doesn't have the joy that we have in suffering. They, they can't comprehend that. But that is a joy that, 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 that we have, and 
that we should be excited about. And yes, we do still live in the world that, that is making us suffer, and Jesus has been more than clear about that. Nobody can ever pretend like, oh, I didn't know what I was getting into. No, read the words of Jesus. Read the red part of your Bible. Tribulation, hate, suffering. No, Jesus let you know the bad, I'm very upfront about this. Yes, there's joy, but I'm not, you know, this isn't your best life now. The goal is your holiness and your best life forever. This leads to um, the joy that we could find in prayer. Joy in prayer. Let's read verses 22 through 24. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And so there's this correlation between prayer and joy, right? Correlation between the act of prayer and joy. Now, how many of you would describe your prayer life as being joyful? I mean, joyful, let's be honest. Mine isn't always joyful. Like, do you go into prayer thinking, oh, joy is coming? Do you leave prayer, oh, what a joyful experience? <clears throat> and yet, what does it say here? You know, that there's, that there's joy involved. So much joy, it says that Jesus is like, yeah, you're not even going to ask anything of me. Your joy is going to be complete. Like, you're going to be so overwhelmed with joy. You're not even going to be thinking about, oh, I need whatever, a new pair of shoes, whatever it might be. So much joy here. And the thing is, I imagine a lot of us, we think of prayer as something that we should do, and we do it, and that's a win, continue to do that. But we don't go far enough. We don't go in, in, into this time where we ask in Jesus' name. Now, Jesus says that here twice, to ask in his name. So I believe this is, this is very much not just a line in prayer he's talking about, but a posture and an attitude of prayer that we need to get to. Well, what does that mean? The first thing we need to know is asking in Jesus' name does not qualify a prayer. It doesn't guarantee a prayer, right? And so it's not a spell. It's not, you know, I, I think I saw a meme where somebody was, was saying a prayer like, Jesus, bless my food in Jesus' name, and they were eating like all this greasy food, you know? It's like, it's not like that. It's not a magical spell whatsoever. It means asking in Jesus' name means knowing what to pray for. What to pray for. Well, how do we know what to pray for? How do we know what to pray for? Knowledge, right, from the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit telling us? Read the Bible. Read your Bible. And so I truly believe that you cannot ask something in Jesus' name if you don't know Jesus and you don't know his word. You don't know who you're talking about. You don't understand the authority of Jesus. You don't understand how powerful that name is. And two, if you don't know his word, you don't know what he's passionate about. You don't love the things he loves and hates the things that he hates. And you can't ask something in his name that he hates. Right? But you have to know that stuff in order to, to ask in Jesus' name. 
And so a great question to ask ourselves about that. When we're having prayer and we're asking for things, ask ourselves is, is this for my comfort or is this for my mission? I think that'll very quickly help you decide whether you're asking in Jesus' name. Is this for my comfort or is this for my mission? If I'm coming to God the Father saying, oh, hey, Jesus sent me. Uh, he wants me to have these $5,000 pair of shoes. Right? God the Father, you know, he's looking at you. He's like, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's what Jesus wants you to pray for. I don't think he sent you with that request. But asking for things about our mission, oh, that, that's a prayer that Jesus said is going to be answered. But this kind of joy-producing prayer, it takes practice. Because we don't start prayer like this, do we? We don't enter prayer like this. Nor would I say that, that, that you must. That's not what I'm saying. You have a relationship with God. You can talk to God. Talk. Like, just go and talk. Like, young people, go talk to God. Before you go to bed, talk to God. Just get in the habit of talking. There's no right and wrong way to pray. Just start talking to God. He loves you, it says in verse 27. He loves you. And just like I love hearing my children talk to me, and I annoy them by saying, talk to me. And they want to go do something else. Your Father in heaven wants to hear you talk. Now the training and discipline aspect of this is then, after we do that, is don't leave that conversation. Once you get past those comfort-related um, requests that aren't bad or necessarily unanswerable, I'm not saying that God doesn't answer any prayer unless it's perfectly theologically aligned and you have a mission statement. And No, God answers prayer. But there's this spirit-pointed, right, mission-minded, ask-in-the-name-of-Jesus prayer that we need to get to. This part of prayer that we need to get to because I believe that's where, as Jesus is saying, there's joy. There's joy coming out of that prayer. And I think for some of us, it's a matter of extending our prayer time, just quite simply. If you take 10 minutes a day to pray, I, I know for most people that I talk to, most of the 10-minute prayers almost look the same every day. You have a sequence of things that you pray for, and that's good. Pray for those things. But if you're not leaving that prayer time with joy, then you need to change things up. Change how we approach and quantify prayer, especially considering the fact that we enter prayer with clustered minds and a bunch of requests for stuff. Right? It's almost like coming to church. How long does it take you when you start worshiping before you let whatever was happening in the parking lot go? Some Puritans believe it took 15 minutes of praying before you could get to praying. All right, so warm up, right? If you, you, you guys, guys who work out, there's, there's almost this warm up to prayer, and I think they were onto something. And if you read that literature, it talks about, well, yeah, because there's so much going on in our mind, we have to get through all that stuff just to, to get to the prayer. I think a great example of this is Bruce Lee. Not that he was a Christian, but, and so Bruce Lee, a great athlete, martial artist, um, one of the things he would say is he wouldn't start counting his reps until he couldn't do anymore. He will go to failure. He can't do any more push-ups. And then he would start counting how many 
that he could do. But I, I believe for most, if not all of us, that we could gain something from that approach to our prayer. Right? When we get to that point, when we think we're done praying, it's getting kind of awkward. You're just standing before God or kneeling before God. You know, you're not sure what to do. Don't leave. Begin praying then. And if you're timing, begin timing yourself then. Go past what you feel is comfortable. Go past your normal routine. Get to a point where you start taking advantage of the Holy Spirit, which is what? Conviction. Then you get to that time where you're before God and the Word, and you start getting convicted. And then your, your to-do list and want list turns into the list of things you need forgiveness for and that you need help with. And from there, it, it's a matter of, of then praying for our neighbors, for our families, for our enemies, for our mission. And I believe that's where the joy is in prayer, right? Mission-minded, Jesus-glorifying prayer. But I also believe not just the time element, how far you push, but also the way that you pray. You know, I know I'm going a little bit, on, a, a lot more on this point because I don't think we've spent a lot of time since I've been here talking about prayer. So I just thought, great time to introduce some of these, these topics. But what about your posture in prayer? Let's say you had five minutes to pray. You have five minutes to pray. How are you going to do that? Well, think about it like this. You have five minutes. Your whole day is full. You have five minutes to see your spouse. You have five minutes to see your best friend. Five minutes to spend with somebody who you respect and love and, and need. How do you spend that five minutes? How, how can you make, go into that conversation knowing you're going to leave it the most productive conversation and you're going to leave with joy? I'll give you two examples. <clears throat> First, you could say um, to that person, okay, we only got five minutes. Here's my list of things I need for you to do. Here's my to-do list. I, we only got a couple minutes. Let's make sure we go over everything you need to do. Here's a list of everything I need. Here's this errand list. Hey, if you have time, if you have time, here's a couple more things that you can do for me. Oh, and also, I'm not feeling great. I think you could be a little better to me. I think you could offer me more. I think you could offer me more. I think you should think about that while we're apart. Secondly, alternatively, you could tell them you love them. You're thankful for them. You appreciate that relationship, how much that relationship means to you. Confess quickly anything that was your fault, right? Just, just own up to it. And then offer, how can you help that person? What can you do for them? You only got five minutes. What can, what can you do for them? Offer yourself to service. Now, which of those interactions do you think is going to bring you more joy? Which is going to bring you more joy? giving somebody a list of things to do or loving somebody and offering yourself to their service. Well, here's the deal. That person who you love, who you're having this conversation with, they already know what you need. They already know what you want. They know you. As God the Father knows us and knows what we need and knows what we want. 
So if we are limited, if we are sincerely limited in our time that we can pray, why not bypass all that stuff? We know in, in, in this relationship that our Father loves us and he knows everything about us. Why not get to that point where we just worship him? Give him the praise he deserves and offer ourselves for service. In conclusion, I just want to look at the words of James in James uh, chapter 1, verse 2, where he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Oh, trials, suffering, tribulation, count it all joy. Right? When you guys think of joy, those are the, those are the first thing you guys think of, right? Yeah, give me some, some tribulation, then I'll be happy. And I think we're going to go through James uh, pretty, pretty shortly here in the church. And we'll talk more about this. But this joy isn't ignorance. He's not saying count it all joy if it's not. <laughs> right? It's not pretend to be cool if you're not cool. If you're not feeling good, don't pretend. It's not a Christian thing to do to pretend to have joy when you're really not having a good time. If it's time to cry, then cry and let us cry with you. But we can have joy in that and coming out of that season. And so joy isn't ignorance, it's knowledge, right? That's what all this comes back to you. Joy isn't being ignorant of your suffering, it's finding joy by embracing the suffering and knowing its purpose and that God loves you. And if he's allowing this to happen, there is a reason for it. And even if you don't know the reason, you know the end game, which is joy, So we could suffer in the knowledge that we have peace with God, that he loves us, that we can pray to him, talk to him, that even if we're suffering, we're going to get through it, that the end game is joy, and nobody could take that joy from us. The question is, do you know that? Do you know that? Because there's knowing and there's knowing. You can know facts about Jesus without knowing Jesus. This knowledge, this knowledge that leads to joy is an advantage of having the Holy Spirit, an advantage that brings us joy even while we're suffering. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.